The students in our program are so remarkable and so inspirational to me and come to our community with such wonderful, beautiful spirits and such incredible potential. They are easy causes to advocate for and they give you every day countless reasons why you should be spending all of your waking hours doing everything you can for them. From Nevada Today, this is Unpacked, backstories of people from the University of Nevada Reno community, their journey, their passions, and their impact. I'm David Stipik with Marketing Communications, and on today's show, how is it that a young boy growing up in Colorado follows his calling to play the violin to eventually become the dean of the university's new honors college? Today, a visit with Matt Means. When you look at universities all across the nation, you'll likely find few professional musicians occupying roles of college administrators. The Honors Program has been part of the University of Nevada, Reno for 60 years, and recently the Board of Regents approved the university's proposal to make it a full Honors College. The Dean is Matt Means, a veteran administrator who, as a violinist, has performed around the world and taught music at the college level. The term humble beginnings gets used a lot, but this is a story of true humble beginnings and the journey that brought Matt to Reno in 2019. But first, what exactly is an honors college and why is it important? To me, it is one word, opportunity, and opportunity to grow. It represents creating a structure, a program, a set of experiences, a way for people to communicate that allows people, students in this case, who are in a crucially developmental part of their lives to be given access to opportunities that cause them to realize their growth potential in a new way, a new and profound way. Honors colleges and honors programs have as a responsibility putting students together with experiences, whether those are curricular experiences, honors coursework, or co-curricular experiences outside of the classroom that challenge and transform their worldview that allow our students to see beyond what they think is capability for themselves, that allow them to understand linkages and relationships between disciplines, people, and the world in new and profound ways, and that ultimately give them a greater appreciation for all kinds of backgrounds, perspectives, viewpoints, and hopes, dreams, and passions. That's in a nutshell, what honors programs and colleges are about. But if I were to give a piece of advice to someone who's just starting out in this field, I would say, don't forget the forgotten. It is so easy for honors programs and honors colleges to just to recognize traditional forms of accomplishment. And trust me, I have absolutely the highest regard for students who have 36 ACT scores and are four sport varsity athletes and who come to college with 70 college credit hours accumulated, that's remarkable, that's fantastic, that's wonderful. But there are a lot of students out there and a lot of people out there who have an innate brilliance and innate capabilities that they don't even realize that they have or don't think that they have. They were just never given an opportunity or they were never provided with a format to have a discussion about the possible. That is what honors colleges and honors programs are about. And that is what we are, we are trying to do here in ours. 
So Matt, I didn't really know much about an honors program, and now it's an honors college. What's the difference? Why was that an important change to make? And for those of us who aren't that familiar with the concept, talk a little bit about how it all works. So now as an honors college, we can offer students multiple pathways through the program. Um, that There are a number of improvements and a number of changes that we are seeking to implement here in the next five years. You as a student in our program gets to choose one of three pathways, each of which has different requirements, different co-curricular and different curricular requirements that allow you to tailor what you do while you're in the Honors College to your interests, passions, talents, desires. And some of those things may be related to their major, but they could be extracurricular. But the idea behind all of these is that they are very relevant to each individual student. They are supervised via a robust mentorship and coaching piece, and they are being explored within a community of students, faculty, and staff that are interested in them reaching full self-actualization. So, you know, the support, I like to use the term high-tech, high-touch. They have access to the very best faculty members, facilities, and equipment, but yet they are also pursuing these things surrounded by people who will inspire them, motivate them, support them, and encourage them at a level that they've never encountered before. So then do you have an honors major or do you keep your major? Uh, are there specific majors that fit in with the honors college? Yeah, we can accommodate any major. And the greater the diversity of majors, frankly, the better. You will work with our mentor and coaching component to identify a series of honors experiences, courses, or co-curricular activities that align with your interests and your callings. And you will basically, via the Honors College's structure, do a deep dive into those things. But that choice of what you do deep dives into will be yours. So any major, any previously attained um, level of college credit can be accommodated. And every journey is unique to each individual person. So how does this fit into the bigger picture nationally and here at this university with the work that you're doing? What kind of student is attracted to an honors college? Generally, nationally, honors programs and colleges tend to be STEM heavy in terms of majors. And I think that's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. The value and contributions that our STEM students offer is really incalculable, not only to the program, but what they'll offer to society once they leave our doors. But we have to, as honors colleges and programs, also provide a structure that allows for new things to be created. So, for example, one of the things that we're launching here is a new tracks-based option for honors courses. So, in, in future years, we'll be working with departments to identify, at their level of interest, sets of honors courses tied around a theme or a discipline. That's something that's very exciting. That's on the horizon for us in the future. And one thing, of course, that honors colleges can do over honors programs is that they can have their own set of faculty. And I see that as we continue to grow and build, that we'll have a demand and a need and a rise for our own faculty members as well. So Matt, as we look at your backstory, you had an interesting start to life right out of the gate. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. Well, I grew up mainly in Colorado. I was born in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, I'm adopted. Um, I am one half of a set of identical twin brothers. My identical twin brother was also adopted by my parents, but didn't, didn't make it. He, he died the week before we came over from Korea. 
but I basically spent my whole formative years in Greeley, Colorado. I was only three months old, so an infant, so I don't really remember anything about that, obviously. But um, it was a wonderful place to grow up. Of course, I didn't really appreciate Colorado until I moved away from it. I think that, you know, perspective and distance always gives somebody a little bit of a greater sense of objectivity. But I, I look back with fondness of my experience in Colorado all my experiences in Colorado. And, and frankly, that was one of the um, attractants about the job here in Reno is that it was a chance to get back to the West again. I have an, uh, an affinity for the West, everything from the climate to the spirit of the people, to the geography, to the ties to nature that has been always been a part of me since, since childhood. So. so you grew up in the Greeley, Colorado area, and I assume that's just because that's where your adoptive parents were from? Well, my parents are, are multi-generational native Coloradans. So um, they are dyed in the wool Westerners. And I grew up as an only child, uh, an experience which other only children, no doubt, <laughs> understand is something that is fraught with advantages and perils. But my parents are wonderful people. I didn't appreciate them as much when I was living with them, of course, as I do now. I not not for a minute would ever have wanted to have been the parents that raised me when I was a teenager, but uh, they were very patient with me. Um, but they're also very different from me, you know, and that was one of the things that was unique growing up in a household, being from a different culture, as well as being biologically not from them. And that may have provided some of the perspective for why I was such a rotten teenager is because you grow up and you start over time realizing what parts of you are nature and what parts are nurture. And there were parts of my personality that I, I realized as I grew up didn't come from my parents, my, my adoptive parents. So that understandably creates a little bit of cognitive dissonance. And um, so there were some issues that I had to wrestle with as a kid growing up. But on the whole, I am very, very fortunate that I got the parents that I did. And they are, I can't thank them enough. So It's uh, interesting how much more we appreciate our parents as we... Uh get a little older and have some experiences and recognize that that wasn't so easy raising us necessarily, even if we were good kids or whatever, it's still, there's a lot to appreciate there. Yeah. I, my, my mom, you know, everybody usually has a situation in which they feel that one parent is more lenient than the other. And my mother was always the one that, that was more interested in knowing where I was going and what I was doing than my dad. And she would say to me when I was a teenager, Matt, just leave a note and let us know where you're going. And me being the musician, I'd write music notes and put them on a piece of paper. And that was my note. I didn't want her knowing where I was going or what I was doing or for how long or who with. So, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure that that frustrated her to no end. But. Now, Matt, somewhere in your childhood at an early age, you start to develop a musical interest that stays with you the rest of your life. Is that something your parents introduced you to or how did that come about? Now, my parents like to say that the only instrument they can play is the radio. And um, I don't come from a musical family at all. That was something that I found purely of my own volition. And literally from the first week of getting my first violin on through the ages, I couldn't stop touching it. It was just an obsession. From the very beginning, it was an absolute obsession. And, you know, some people talk about how they take a circuitous route through life to find out what their major is that responds best to their calling or their identity. From the sixth grade, I knew I wanted to major in music and music was going to be it and violin was going to be it. I would have my dad pick me up from school 
And I would have him drop me off at the music building at my local university about 3.30. And I would say, come pick me up at 10. And I would just practice or go to the music library and listen to music and read books and write out music and all the kinds of things. So it was a, an obsession from the very beginning. So just how old were you when you started the violin? I first started playing the violin in the sixth grade, which actually, looking back on it, was way too late. I mean, if you want to be especially in the very, very, very congested instruments, I'm thinking violin, cello, piano um, in particular, and you want to do that as a professional performing career, the earlier the better. I mean, most of the people I know who are professional performing musicians on those instruments started at between ages three and five. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And honestly, I many times still feel I do <laughs> I have a lot of catching up to do. So, All right. You, you mentioned that you kind of did this on your own volition. What drew you to even explore that? And then how did you end up with a violin in your, in your hands? What was it about that instrument that drew you? At, at my elementary school, there was a process by which the whole local high school brought on a certain day the band, the choir, and the orchestra for us to listen to because the next year in school, you would have to choose one of those. And being a male, all of my male friends were gravitating to three instruments, the trumpet, percussion, or saxophone. I didn't want to be like my friends. And I remember the high school orchestra came and played a piece of music to this day. I cannot remember what it was that I loved and I had never heard live. Based on that, I, I went with violin and um, I never looked back. And I don't know really what it was even about it, but it was something that called to me. And, you know, I think that certainly the arts, but I think a lot of other professions too, ideally every profession, there's an element of it choosing you and you not choosing it and of it being a calling or there being something about it that resonates in a deep way. And um, as I say, it certainly did that for me. I learned that not only did I love it, I was okay at it, which made me love it even more because it gave me discipline and confidence. And it gave me something that I could sort of use as an identity. And it felt good to feel like among my peer group and among, as time went on, other people, that that was my thing, my shtick, <laughs> so to speak. So how did your parents feel about this? You had this obsession with the music and, and playing the violin. Uh, overall, were they supportive? They were, but they never would attend my concerts very often uh, because the music that I played was not the kind of music that they enjoyed. <laughs> so uh, they provided me rides, of which I can only be now retrospectively very grateful for. But music was kind of a solitary endeavor for me. You know, there were times when I felt that music was my best and only friend. And maybe that's why I have been so devoted to it. But yeah, I, I was not, I did not have the doting parents who came to every recital and were in the front row and had the video camera and all that. And that was not, no, I, I where do you need to be dropped off, Matt? When do you need to be picked up? <laughs> so outside of playing the violin, which sounds like it was pretty much the main focus of your childhood, what else was going on? What were your early years like? Well, I grew up in, a, in an environment that was far from privileged. I grew up in a low-income household. I remember very clearly there were some weekends where we just didn't have money to get groceries. 
I remember that it was a great privilege if my parents could afford to buy me a $3 magazine in a given month. And so we moved around a lot. My father was in and out of jobs constantly. Uh, my mom couldn't work because she had, well, and still does have multiple sclerosis and was disabled. And I probably moved 13 or 15 times by the time I graduated high school. Sometimes because of eviction, sometimes because we had to downsize because where we were living, the rent was too high. But it was not a charmed life. And it was a childhood while I was safe was a childhood of need and of want. And so I think that in some ways, music for me was also an escape. Music at times I felt rescued me when I saw other students thriving or being given opportunities or having access to things that I didn't have access to. Music was a point of pride for me. I like to tell people, you know, that, you know, I was three times handicapped. I was a low income background. I was in a sexual minority and I was an ethnic minority. I was a person of color. And so I learned growing up as a child before I became completely independent that the world operates under a complex set of guidelines and expectations. And so those experiences, all those experiences helped inform and still to this day inform who I am now. So Matt, early on, you've got the violin, which has now become your identity and kind of your comfort zone. You're moving around a lot. You've got this uncertain economic situation. And describe the world of Matt Means now as you head through high school and into your college years. Violin was very all-consuming. I, Because of my obsession with music and because of my upbringing and circumstances, I was not one of these children who had training with the Princeton Review and a lot of preparation for college and everything. As a matter of fact, to a large degree, I was flying by the seat of my pants. And I, I graduated from high school being a very unremarkable student. I think my cumulative GPA was like a 3A and I was ranked 44th in my high school graduating class. I was no, by no stretch of the imagination, a valedictorian or salutatorian. That was never something, honestly, that I thought that I was capable of. And so I got done with my formative K through 12 schooling. And then, the, then that's when everything changed. Because once I started taking college classes, I was actually taking college classes before I got done with high school. But once I started to dive into that more deeply, then it was like a switch went off. Now it's time for me to live up to my potential. Now I've declared a major. Now I need to maximize everything that I've got. It was almost like I became a different person. And then I had to get an A in everything. And then everything had to be perfect, especially when it came to music. So was there something in particular about your time at the University of Northern Colorado uh, that brought about those significant changes in your life? So like many uh, universities, there is a student fee allocation process. Our student government controlled a lot of money in student fees, like is the case at our current university. And in one given year, that student government decided to defund all of the funding it had historically given to the performing arts, which at that time was several hundred thousand dollars. And the same year, that student government also decided to fund all of athletics. So the band geeks and the jocks decided to team up. We created an alliance. We got a slate together. And 
The position I ran for turned out to be the most influential student position at my university, which was the student trustee position. It's the student position on the university governing board. It would be like if there was a student regent. And seven of our trustees were appointed by the Colorado governor. One was a faculty trustee and there was a student trustee. But I had to do a lot of research and I was running against somebody who had been in student government for two years and was very, very experienced. But because of this alliance between all of intercollegiate athletics and all of the college in performing and visual arts, our whole slate got elected into office in student government. And that represented a watershed moment for me. That year taught me that I could do things other than music. It was very, very important to me because it, it gave me a crash course in the whole phenomenon of higher education. And I had to, in board meetings, sit next to people who were at the top of their careers nationally, who were operating at a level that was far beyond anything that I had ever conceived of. And I had to be able to speak cogently and call those people peers. And so it made me grow up. It made me maximize every iota of potential I had in my brain and my body. And learning that there was another part of me or could be another part of me besides music opened up a world that has stayed with me as you now know today. You know, I think everybody, I like to tell people that we as human beings have needs that go beyond just eating, drinking, and those kinds of things. I think we all have a need to be loved. I think we all have a need to be inspired. And I was around people who were tremendously inspiring. And those people helped root me, give me roots as a human being that I still draw upon today. So as we move along the timeline now of your backstory, you earned your bachelor's degree from the University of Northern Colorado as one of the top graduates there. Uh, then you applied, I believe, for music schools to pursue your advanced degrees. And as I understand it, you were one of a small number of top-level students accepted into the Cleveland Institute of Music and Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Why did you choose the Cleveland Institute, uh, and what was that experience like for you? At that time, it was one of the preeminent, especially if you were a string player, one of the preeminent music conservatories, private music conservatories in the world. The Cleveland Orchestra, which is one of the finest orchestras in the world, arguably the best orchestra in the country, was just steps away and most of their principal players were faculty members of that institute. And Case Western Reserve University, where I got all of my non-musical courses, also an excellent, excellent institution, very closely related and aligned with the Cleveland Clinic, which is an excellent hospital. Um, and that community, just in general, Cleveland, Ohio, has deep roots artistically, culturally. It's a fascinating community. So I decided that I was going to fly from the proverbial nest and I was going to go, wanted to go as deeply and as intensively as I could into one of the artistic and cultural capitals that this world can offer. And I went from being at a university of 12 or 13,000 to, in the case of CIM, being at a small conservatory, which had at that time a limit of 350 students. And it was a very, 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 very intense, but ultimately beneficial experience in training me in becoming the very best musician I could be. And I was there for five years through both of my graduate degrees. So. 
Uh, with your advanced degrees from the Cleveland Institute of Music in hand, it was back to Colorado for a year of teaching and looking for the right career opportunity. It seems you found that opportunity in Kansas, where you were a tenured track assistant professor at Fort Hayes State University. That's where you also served as a department chair for two years. But it sounds like you still weren't ready to pursue college administration as your full-time work. I was still so young and I, there was still so much performing and teaching that I wanted to do, so much research I wanted to do. I had experience, but I was also just enjoying being a professor because I think in many regards, being a full-time teaching professor is one of the most joyous and rewarding occupations in the whole landscape, just period. And I was loving it. That president and my provost at the time said, well, we want you to keep doing something administrative in nature. And they said, do you have any interest in working with high achieving students? And I said, no, but that sounds intriguing. I took that on. At that point, there was basically no programming for high achieving students at that university. There was a strong desire from the faculty for there to be programming. And over the course of the next 10, 11 years, I worked on it. And the result was eventually being the founding director of their honors college, which wound up occupying my last four or five years at that university before I came here to Reno. And you've said uh, in our prior conversations a couple of times that you felt very welcome to campus, very comfortable in Reno. People have been very open-hearted, I think, something along those lines. Uh, give me a quick sense of, of how that experience has been for 13 months for you. Yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you that in some ways, professionally, I maybe have never been as fulfilled as I am now. Uh, the university is full of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people who are so dedicated and so, so giving. I... I just, I, I'm really almost speechless at this because every person that I've met and that I've had the privilege of working with at the university has been just a real gem, a real pearl. And I have to pinch myself that I have been placed at this place, at this point in my life to be able to have this experience. So I am beyond grateful, beyond grateful. Hmm. Well, Matt, you came to the university last year as the director of the honors program. It's been on campus about 60 years, and it's a brand new chapter now. It's now the honors college. You're now the dean. So what's your thought process, your philosophy about the honors college, and, and give us a little bit of a sense for what's next? What's the future look like as you go forward? So while the, the honors college moniker is not new, I will say that all of the changes that we're implementing in the next five years represent the progressive edge of what honors colleges are doing nationally in this country. So I'm very excited about the innovation element to our strategic plan that we're launching here this fall that I think will help set us apart from our peers in remarkable ways. You know, to a large degree, if you look at their models, whether they're called honors colleges or honors programs, the majority of them in this country are basically following the same tried and true recipe, which is get the students in the door, have them take a whole bunch of quote, unquote, hard classes, give them a notation on their transcript or diploma and graduate them. It can be so much more than that. It should be so much more than that. And that's what we're doing here is we're really trying to create an experience, a developmental experience, not just a recognition experience that is individually transformative and helps students become more than they could have ever conceived of themselves beforehand. And that philosophical bent and what we're doing in terms of changing our admissions procedure, our structure, our pathways, our mentorship coaching support component, 
and our external outreach is really what's going to differentiate us from other honors colleges, not only in the region, but in the country. So Matt, how much of that vision that differentiates this university's honors college comes from the way you experienced your education and, and music and the different opportunities? I know you're a modest person, but what do you think? How much does the Matt Means factor help create this new vision? Oh, that's hard for me to say objectively. <laughs> you know, you've got a vision that comes obviously from your heart and your soul. Uh, and uh, there's a spirit there that I can hear. How do you see that passion and vision that you have almost energizing this whole process? There is certainly a large element every day when I think of what I do that's tied around how can I structure my work in such a way that these students are exposed to and have the benefits of four years that are even more remarkable than the four years I had. How can I go beyond that? How can, how can I put them in touch with people and resources and opportunities that will have a similarly or even more impactful experience than I did? But this, the students in our program are so remarkable and so inspirational to me and come to our community with such wonderful, beautiful spirits and such incredible potential. They are easy causes to advocate for. And they give you every day countless reasons why you should be spending all of your waking hours doing everything you can for them. And there is a reward in that is incredible. You know, I, I'm gonna say something a little heretical here. I love my profession. I love music. I love the violin. I love performing. I will tell you, and I'm, I know that what I'm about to say is probably going to get a lot of people mad, so be it. To a certain degree, music is a little selfish in that when you're on stage performing, there is never a moment that goes by where you're not thinking about yourself in some way, shape or form. You have to, you have to think, what am I doing? What am I creating? Your audience may be getting a lot from that, but there's a lot of you tied up into what you're doing. There is a tremendously liberating element to being an honors dean or just working in higher education administration in the sense that everything that I do is for somebody else. And there is so much less of me in the musical sense that is brought into the decisions and the work that I do as an honors dean. And that sense of service of serving others, of being beholden to something other than oneself. There is a level of that that I get in the work that I do currently that is there at a level that, or in a way that is unique compared to the musical sphere. You know, that really says quite a bit about you and why you're the Dean of the Honors College here at the university. Matt, before I let you go, as you were describing your childhood here a little bit ago, you said you had three things working against you, so to speak. You are from a low-income background, you're a person of color, and also you mentioned being a sexual minority. I wanted to circle back to that and give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that, if you'd like. Well, I think that everybody who's part of the GLBTQA community, you know, that is a, that is a journey that doesn't carry with it a set timeline. And there are so many variables that go into um, one's journey in learning who they are and those kinds of identifiers that makes it, in the one hand, 
challenging, but on the other hand, also deeply gratifying. And certainly for me, it's given me a greater heart and understanding for what that journey is like for others. Certainly for me, uh, it's given me an appreciation for those who champion the rights of those who are on the fringes or operate from minority perspectives in general. And it's um, given me a greater understanding of what is possible in life and in a community because we're all a mixture and a blend of so many different influences. You know, I'll give you an example. That's one of my identifiers, but also my faith is one of my most important identifiers. And that is a discussion, a much longer discussion perhaps for another time, but those are not two things that I view as mutually exclusive. And so when I think of who I am, um, person of color, sexual minority, faith-based and driven, um, musician, academic administrator, uh, pet lover, uh, video game player. Uh, you know, th- these are all things that, that mix interchange in, in strange and unpredictable kinds of ways. But I will say that um, these are all things that help me ultimately relate and empathize, I think, with a big cross-section of people who I interact with on a day-to-day basis. And that's important because I think if you're an honors dean or if you're in a position where your work puts you into contact with a lot of different people, empathy is maybe one of the most important elements or qualities that you perhaps can have or need. Matt Means, Dean of the New Honors College at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm David Stipik with Marketing Communications, and I hope you enjoyed this edition of Unpacked, the new podcast from Nevada Today. You can find out more about the Honors College online at unr.edu honors. And for daily and weekly news from the university, be sure to subscribe to the university's news source, Nevada Today, at unr.edu slash Nevada Today. That's also where you can listen to the latest episodes or find Unpacked wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Unpacked Podcast.